Also, uh, I'm scared I'm going to sound like the X Factor voice. Yeah. Instead of Garage. <laughs> Rachel Adadeji. <laughs> I wonder how many times you had to practice until you got that one right. A few times. <laughs> Rachel, what, darling? Rachel Adadeji. 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 Um, All right. Without further ado. Could terribly episode forty. Huge for the culture. Huge, massive for the culture. What was it you said, Ruby? Why are you whispering? You're on the podcast. Ruby anniversary. You're literally, you're literally on the podcast. Your voice not in the actually crowd. matters today. This is the 40th, the ruby anniversary of This Could and Terrible. <laughs> Clicks to us. Clicks to us. Massive, Great. massive. Them other podcasts could never. They could, well, maybe, they tried. if they could apply themselves. The right level of dedication Locked. and effort. Um, <laughs> welcome to everybody. This Could and Terribly, episode 40. You are here with the lovable rogues. Johnny Vivas. My like Abby Addy, that's me. Hello. We've got two very special guests, but before we get into that, I have to do this. Professionalism, timestamps, etc. Shout out our Spotify listeners. Yes. Our Amazon Music listeners. Yes. Our Apple Podcast listeners. Yes. Our SoundCloud listeners. Yes. And our YouTube viewership. Nasty, you nasty, nasty people. people. Nasty people. <laughs> Hope you are well. It is April. Going into May, it's fucking crazy. Where yes. is the year gone? Um, and we actually are going to do quite a different episode today. I think it's been 39 episodes where we've kind of just stuck to what's been going on in the news, right? We are a current affairs podcast and pretty much our subject matter is dictated by what happens in the days leading up to recording. But we wanted to do something very, very special today mm -hmm. um, around topics which are important to us. A few episodes ago when we were speaking about Rishi's... Is it spring or summer statement? Spring statement. Spring statement. We bantered our way through it quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but the reality is that there there were some really, really important, quite darker elements to it that we didn't really touch upon. Yes. In terms of the impacts of some of the, uh, the announcements that were made. And I think in the run up or after following that episode, we had quite a few people reaching out, especially Johnny, um, to talk about the effects of it all. Um, and Johnny and I have already spoken about, you know, how things have been very, very compounded um, for all of us, uh, having gone through the pandemic and everything that's then come after. Um, and we wanted to do a very, very special episode, which explored some of the relationships between the things we've seen, things that have been an announced and the effects that they have on mental health. So we have two very special guests very special. with us today. <laughs> very special guests. <laughs> Firstly... Senior Economist at the Center for Economic Justice at the Institute for Public Policy Research, or IPPR. We have man like Henry Parks. Welcome. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thank you nice for coming. To be here. Welcome to Bo. Welcome to Bo, the Welcome House of Bo. Grime. The House of Grime. And we have junior psychiatrist from the East London area. Jeez. Host of Voices Radio Show. Yes. Long, cool woman. Yes. Very cool woman. Not long, not particularly long. long. I'm five oh. seven, so it's quite long. Compact. Wow. Quantum cool woman. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie James, ladies and gentlemen. 
Welcome. Welcome to you both. Welcome to you both. Great to have you. Thank you for making this happen. Um, are you well? Yeah. Fairly well. Yeah. Fairly well. I'm really yeah. well. I'm yeah. really well, yeah. Yeah. I'm having Fantastic. a good day. Got my yeah. coffee. Fantastic. Yeah, Thank she, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, I've never Richard. heard of a toffee coffee before. A toffee coffee. So when I was, when I was getting that thing, as I called Johnny, I said, there's no caramel latte. There's mm. only a toffee one. Mm. But then I clicked on toffee and they gave me an option for an additional caramel drizzle. And I was oh, like, oh, that's mental, my isn't it? God. That's caramel <laughs> on top of the... Yeah, that's in, crazy. Not in, uh, not, in, not in this economy. That's too much. <laughs> exactly. That's too much. But um, as I said, we're going to jump right in because I think this is very important. As I said, we we touched upon it from, from purely an economic side. And I think we did make the point that this is going to be a pretty trying period for people all around the country. Johnny obviously uh, has has uh, a distinct disdain for the term cost of living crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just one of the things that we're going to touch upon um, all throughout this episode. But maybe Johnny, maybe you want to expand as to why we are doing this episode, um, what you wish to gain from it, and then we could just jump right in. Yes. So simply the point of this episode um, is to lay out the reasons behind a theory of mine that I've held for quite a long time that uh, capitalism is killing our kids simply. And when you say that people think it's hyperbole, um, but then you dig into the root causes of why someone would say something like that. And the evidence starts to become overwhelming. Um, my closest friends, people in my life know uh, of my struggles with mental health um, throughout my life. I was first diagnosed with depression when I was about 17. I was re-diagnosed when I was about 21, 22. I was given an extra Brucey bonus of an anxiety disorder mm. at that time, just a bit of flavor for my, men- bit my, of for my mental couscous. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and ever since then have lived with both of those conditions. There's been uh, mental health issues on both sides of my family throughout my entire life. Um, again, many people know my old man killed himself in 2016. Uh, as a result of uh, the stress from that, I developed alopecia. Shout out Will Smith standing up for the community. Yep. Uh, yes. More people should be slapped. More people should be slapped for alopecia as well. Oh my God, yeah. I'm so um, glad you're saying this. But the number of people who have approached me over the last few months in particular, or this year, <clears throat> knowing that I'm someone they can speak to because I've been through it myself, has increased enormously to quite an alarming rate. And there's always generalization that people make about oh you know that that bloke he's someone that you would never expect it to happen to he's kind of not the person that you'd ever expect it to and it's something that i've always kind of reviled but it's happening more and more to people you just wouldn't expect it to from all spectrums of life um from people who i work with in the city um to people who have kind of less kosher lines of employment um (laughs) to everything in between um people are going through it people are going through it in a bad way and it's not just because rishi's overtly drawn a spring statement to fuck poor and young people but it's as a result really of a 50-year structural decline in living standards of workers uh, and the opportunities uh, afforded um, to people of uh, working and middle classes and so what we want to get into today is the drivers behind why millennials are so depressed why are mm. so millennials so many millennials depressed and why are we a uniquely depressed generation is it because mm mental health is just something that we talk about more often these days. Is it because we're a bunch of snowflakes? (laughs) 
Probably. But is it also uh, <laughs> because we entered the job economy sometime after 2008, we started working as the Tories uh, destroyed anything that was like a welfare state? Is it because we've gone through 12 years of austerity? Is it because our rent is unaffordable? Our job security is uh, non-existent? Our chance of ever owning a home so much that this so much importance on which this country puts is near zero um and we live through an unprecedented time of intergenerational income inequality and regression uh, and i think it's probably the latter package and so we thought we would invite an economist and yep. a psychiatrist to come and break it down uh, and we wanted to do so. Uh, one thing I was very keen when we discussed putting this episode on was not to make this a depressive fucking chat about mental health. Because mm-hmm. Jesus, there's so much shit chat about like, oh, I'm just kind of going through it at the moment. Uh, and then you get like celebrities who like hide behind, like do mad shit and then hide to say, oh, I'm depressed. I'm mm-hmm. going through it. And like so much, genuinely, so much of the discourse about mental health is fucking depressive, mm-hmm. right? And it's so boring. Um, and if you weren't already suicidal, it would make you suicidal. <laughs> But there is power. There is power in reclaiming your own agency and reclaiming um, your discourse of your mental health. Um, we wanted that discussion to go in that vein. And so we're not just going to be doing sympathy pops. Um, we're going to be finding out why the stories are fucking us and why capitalism is fucking us. <laughs> Christ. Um, without, without, even, without even the accommodation of Vaseline. Uh, yeah, or no a condom. <laughs> so so uh, a good place to start, I guess, Ellie... Mm. If is it, if, if it gets too serious should we just volunteer someone at random to sing a song <laughs> yeah it has to be mm. r&b has to be r&b has to be r&b okay because then you've got to work Beyonce? for it right it's you can't rap R&B. No. well that's punchy <laughs> you've let me lift yourself. you up bend down <laughs> put yourself in the stop <laughs> is there a mix to ignition please oh, do no we can't do our kelly <laughs> no you know he's cancelled no, 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 you can't do our kelly he's done he's done oh can't yeah do that. but cancel culture let me Shit. play with you i just want to stop making eye contact while you sing at me extremely sad you can go back to ellie um yeah what is depression what, what is depression? depression? Very simply, because I kind of feel I'm like tested. I feel like you hear a lot of shit about people like, well, depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And it's the most like dumb, reductive and possibly factually inaccurate mm. expressions of depression. So quite simply, what is depression and how does popular understanding of it differ from the clinical reality? Well, when I think about depression, which is every single day now, when I think, well, it is actually because I work <laughs> in it, but like for me, when I think about it in my patients, it's a combination of three symptoms, which is um, low mood, uh, lack of motivation, um, and lack of interest in things that you would normally do. Um, so for me, I can see it in like a kind of more of like a presentation of symptoms, right? And for it to be classed as depression, you have to experience those symptoms for a significant amount of time. So somewhere between like four to six weeks ongoing. Um, it doesn't sound very long. No. When you say significant amount of time, I think this is where people fall over the first hurdle, right? And that they feel like they have to feel like this for a year mm. before anyone takes it seriously. And actually, if you've been feeling like this for a year, you're pretty far down the whole of depression. Good God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because you can have... Um, you know, you can have a, if, if it was a shorter, a shorter time period, you could call it a depressive episode, right? Mm-hmm. It's still a form of depression. You've had an episode of depression, a, a short episode. Yeah. But you can have people who have much, much longer, uh, a much longer disease course, if you wanted to use like a really medical word mm-hmm. for it. And it can go on for years. So, yeah. 
And within that, there's also a load of other symptoms you'd experience, but those are the three main things that you look for. What are the other symptoms? Oh, there's bloody loads, there is. <laughs> um, is, one, <laughs> is one a sporadic Welsh accent? <laughs> <laughs> so also, actually, well, before I answer that, can I just say, you know the intro there, you were saying about um, mental health being a topic that when it's discussed is usually like a relatively sad, difficult thing yeah. to listen to. My show is actually fully about making it other than that. My, my radio show. So I'm completely on board with this. And I think... Shit, she plugging her shit she's on plugging her, her own shit on our shit. Yeah. She took that took like four minutes. Hey, she's so barely crass. offered any value. <laughs> I was going to give her a whole <laughs> section at the end. <laughs> that was your section, dear. Hey, 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 hey. You plugged my show right in the beginning for me. <laughs> Thank you very much. You introduced <laughs> it. All I'm doing... I'm not going to mention the name of it again. Because just no, no, because no, of no, that... No, 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 We're not those yeah, guys. You can, defi- you can definitely plug. No, no, I'm not going to. Because... It's a plug-friendly space. <laughs> my my whole reason was saying that was because I this is that's the same mindset that I have right. when I'm doing my show. I want to make it like something that's listenable, more than yep. listenable, yep. like enjoyable, you know, and like bring people through the episodes of whatever we're talking about with mm-hmm. like a sense of yeah, like you say, power, enjoyment, and also just kind of like moving forward. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how, that's how I like to like yeah, yeah, do yeah. my stuff. So I, I think it's really nice and sure. good idea For sure. the way you're doing it, but back to depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. So we said earlier, so it's low mood, lack of motivation and a lack of enjoyment mm-hmm. of, um, the things you'd normally enjoy. But then with that, um, something you mentioned earlier, hopelessness, worthlessness, yeah. um, guilt, uh, problems with sleeping mm-hmm. and problems with appetite. Yeah. So those two last ones, sleeping and appetite are known as the, biological symptoms of depression yeah um and what else are there there's probably a few more but yeah hopelessness worselessness um problems with sleeping problems appetite and then also potentially suicidality so or self-harm so thinking about ending your life Ta-da! that's how i understand depression menu and uh recently i guess over the last um six months to a year or at least through the pandemic have you noticed any trends in terms of the age, uh, the background uh, of people who are seeking help. Have you noticed an uptick uh, in the number? Uh, and have you noticed any patterns in terms of the symptoms that are being presented or the cases that are coming to you? So one thing that I've noticed more in a personal context is um, back at back at home in Newport, where I'm from in Wales, there's been four people in my brother's circle and one kind of, well, two, two of them in my circle as well who've committed suicide. Wow. Two in the last, February, March, two and a half months. And one around two years ago, so like mid-pandemic, and another at some point. I actually can't remember when he died. And how old were they, roughly? So they were all between the age of like 25 and 30. Very young. And they were all men as well. Right. And three of them were white, but I'm from a very white area mm-hmm. so to be expected that's who i would know mm-hmm. uh yeah so i've personally on a personal level it's literally like what the hell is going on yeah. like and these four four lads mm. uh had they presented in the past any symptoms had had anyone been aware that they were uh, seeking help or treatment had they been diagnosed with anything or were, or were they all totally out of the blue they were so one of them the most recent one his family and his friends knew that he was going through some stuff, Mm -hmm. but they weren't aware of the level. The person who passed away in January, on the 10th of January was, uh, he was, none of his friends knew. His family knew, but 
none of his friends. Mm. So it was a real shocker. Uh, and then the guy that passed away a few years ago, he was, yeah, another shocker. So very much, I like you say, not some, not things that you would have expected, not people that you knew were struggling. Fine. Henry. Hello. Uh, welcome. Thanks. Explain to us the welcome to the job market that millennials have had as a generation and how uh, people who have entered the world of work since 2010 Mm. compare their prospects compared mm -hmm. to previous generations and how uh, the outlook of people of this generation have com have kind of stood in comparison with Gen Xs and boomers, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. Um, so um, certainly the case that since uh, the financial crisis, uh, wages in the UK have pretty much stagnated. So yes, they've gone up in kind of nominal terms, but because of uh, prices going up, actually we're, we're kind of back where we started. Yeah. So they took kind of, you know, nearly, nearly a decade to recover. Mm -hmm. And now we're looking in the future, uh, prospects are pretty grim as well. You know, at the spring statement, we had a, a forecast for real sort of real wage growth, if you like. And it's, you know, things are not going to get better. Yeah. So generally speaking, people who have entered the labor market at this point um, have had a pretty terrible time of it. And uh, within that, it probably disguises actually quite large uh, differences that people have had. Mm -hmm. So we can say on average that, you know, uh, there's, we've had sort of stagnation. And underneath that, actually, some people have had much worse than stagnation. You know, they found they've had real reductions in their pay over time, despite the fact, you know, they've been working for maybe five, 10 years. Um, and then other people who have kind of done really well and kind of flew off and kind of made really excellent uh, income gains. Um, but generally speaking, the overall picture is, is one of stagnation. And uh, yeah, I think that's fair. So in the very present moment, we keep hearing mm. um, this term that I hate, cost of living crisis. Yeah. Um, and we're also living through an inflationary spike, mm -hmm. which is something that certainly markets and real economies in Europe haven't experienced mm -hmm. for our, somewhere around 50 years properly. Yeah. Can you explain to us the impact of inflation on, um, on wages, on consumers, um, yeah. and what uh, an inflationary shock like this mm -hmm. is and does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots to unpack there. Um, <laughs> so um, where to start? So yeah, so, so I would say that sort of inflation and the cost of living crisis, uh, we could put them together, right? So yep. the cost of living crisis is effectively uh, inflation that is out of control, um, prices rising much faster than people's earnings, people's benefits, the way that people, you know, get their income sources. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so obviously it's, Put frankly, it's a bummer for everyone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know nobody wants gas prices to go up. Yep. Nobody wants the price of food to go up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but um, it's certainly the case that it, towards the lower end of the income distribution, you are going from something that might be, oh, you know, I might have to go on one less holiday, or I might, you know, not be able to buy a nice new car. But obviously, as you go towards the bottom of the income distribution. Uh, it becomes a lot more serious. We're not talking mm -hmm. about people just cutting down a bit. We're talking about people who are already, you know, potentially living on a knife edge. They they can barely cope. Their finances are already in a, in a really poor state. Mm -hmm. And then you're loading additional pressure onto these households mm -hmm. and expecting them to be able to cope with it. And it's like, well, where will this money come from? And it's also the case that um, people in the lower side of the income distribution have, you know, for many years kind of often spent more than their earnings have been. 
um, you know, accumulated debt, mm -hmm. for instance. We know through the pandemic that people on low incomes basically have been far more likely to either deplete their savings yep. or, in, or, or have an increase in debt. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, people at the top end of the income distribution have cleared their debts um, and they've um, bumped up their savings, yep. basically. Um, and they've done that because through the pandemic, it sort of forced them to save. They used to spend a lot of money on, to, frankly, sort of nice things like going out for dinner and going on holiday. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to do those things. Obviously, not great for them, but, you know, they were able to boost their savings, boost their sort of financial resilience. Mm -hmm went up mm -hmm. yeah um so so in effect this this kind of the lower income end of the income distribution were first hit by the pandemic disproportionately mm -hmm. and then also is are going to be hit uh more from uh the inflation that's ahead and then another point that's probably worth raising as well if this wasn't kind of already sort of grim enough um <laughs> is that generally speaking so you know when the forecasters talk about what inflation will be they talk about an inflation rate for a general consumer, so a general person who's mm -hmm. probably quite likely to be in the middle of the income distribution. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of economists are saying is that actually lower income households, because they spend a higher proportion of their income on mm -hmm. essentials like food and fuel, they will actually experience a higher inflation rate than the general population. So yeah. on average, they might experience, I don't know, prices going up by 7%, mm -hmm. but for them, it might be even more severe. It could be looking at 10, 11% yeah. for their personal sort of what we call their basket of goods, yeah. Yeah. Um, which means mm -hmm. actually that they're going to experience not only more inflation, but they are less able to kind of dodge it or, or handle yeah. it, basically, yeah. if that makes sense. And something that's, I think, often overlooked in, in inflation discourse, if that's really a thing, um, in, oh, it's, it's definitely a thing. It's a thing. Well, <laughs> in, 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 something that's overlooked in terms of how people approach inflation in the markets, but probably more perniciously in, in, in the real economy, is that inflation goes up by 7% year on year and it goes up another 7%. Hmm. Even if inflation dogs back down to 0%, yep. prices haven't gone down. Yep. You're still baked in that 7% yep. and then 7%. Yeah, so yeah. what we're seeing is really a structural change in access to goods that's disproportionately hitting poor people and by proxy young people yeah because we're a generation who've never been able to save cash because we've had such thin job opportunities yeah uh, and entered a job economy which we'll get into more detail um that has uh, that has uniquely hit our uh, ability to accumulate capital but yeah for the poorest what is the uh, current state of state support welfare mm -hmm. yeah uh, and how did the spring statement benefit or hinder yeah. uh, the very poorest in terms of the assistance available to them. Sure. Um, so first of all, I'm, I'm really glad we brought that up because you're right, it is missing from the conversation about, you know, just because inflation goes down, it's not going to go negative. So it's not going to, it's not going to undo the kind of issues that we had, you know, it's at best, it's going to slow down. So yeah, I agree, I think. And it is missing from the conversation, I think, about, about this. Mm -hmm. And it's quite daunting. Um, so yeah, so for people um, who um, are... Um, accessing benefits so obviously big controversy there was kind of an expectation actually that uh, the chancellor would decide to uprate benefits by the uh, sort of true or expected level of inflation mm -hmm. uh, the way that let's not get into too much detail here yeah. but the way that inflation uh, is uh, sorry benefits are uprated is on a lag yeah. and because it's based on that lag basically it means that there's just going to be this huge mismatch between how much uh, benefits go up and how much uh, income uh, is expected to go up. Can you tell me, can you explain what that means again? The lag thing? Yeah. A lag with what? Um, so basically, so benefits go up uh, with inflation. Right. But they will be based on, so uh, benefits in April, as in just now, yeah. um, go up by how much inflation rose 
in September. So there's a six month delay. Oh, I see. So if see. you're thinking about that, like most of the serious inflation problems that we've had have been in that in that six month period. Got you. So in effect, the way that benefits are uprated is kind of out of kilter yeah. with actually with the, what's going on in the yeah in the shops of, yeah in what's going on with the shops yeah. indeed. So you've got an expectation that you know um, so so just to, to put it down there, benefits are going to go up three point one percent. Well, mm-hmm. they went up three point one percent yesterday. Um, and uh, bear in mind as well, um, the government has obviously recently withdrawn uh, the £20 uplift to universal credit, yep. which was a temporary thing that was introduced to help um, during the pandemic. So they've already seen this quite dramatic cut in their uh, sort of living standards already. And then on top of that, we're now going to see infl- uh, benefits rise much slower than, uh, the, than than prices. Yeah, so this was what we touched on episode 37. It's a 3.1% benefit increase for a government confirmed or projected uh, 8.1% yeah. inflation rate. So that's yeah. that's a real terms cut. I never yeah. knew that. That's nuts. So, and just to say as well, adding to that, my point earlier that actually the inflation rate faced by low-income people might actually be even higher than higher 8%. Than 8%. So the, disco- yeah, the, dif- the distance between them actually even larger than that potentially. Um, Ellie, you practice in East London. Yeah. Um, what are the main complaints uh, and what are the main drivers of people coming to seek treatment? And does poverty ever factor into uh, how people explain that they're struggling? Oh my God, yeah. Poverty is definitely involved, 100%. Um, like, okay, so I'll give you an example of where I'm working at the moment. I'm working in Newham um, on a crisis team. So we have like, we're like a phone line that people ring up and say like, I'm struggling with my mental health today. Mm-hmm. And then we assess them and then we say like, oh yeah, you need to be sent to this team or like, we'll help you for a bit and then go here or da 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 da. And I mean, obviously it's working in Newham. So most of Newham is relatively deprived, like anyway, Mm -hmm. but yeah, a lot of, a lot of the factors that I see come into it are, uh, social factors like homelessness, Mm -hmm. um, in Newham, actually, interestingly, the crisis line can be used by anyone who is not actually, they don't have to be living in Newham, just have to be staying in Newham, Mm -hmm. which I think speaks to the, the level of, um, problem in Newham itself, the amount of people there who are either homeless so they don't have an address mm. it's not that's not the same for a lot of other areas yeah so yeah um definitely a lot of homelessness um domestic violence um that i see a lot of the time uh what was i seeing the other day let's have a think i was seeing a guy with um psychosis but he'd been smoking for a long time mm-hmm. not cannabis um but this guy was then also having a, an acute episode on top of that and his social factors were yeah he was homeless he was another one with, without a home mm. actually and he was having to stay with his mother um Poverty 100% and the, and the effects of it, like lower socioeconomic class, in inverted commas, always we see much more prevalence mm. of mental health problems, no matter what those problems are. And we're seeing more and more people driven into poverty, aren't we? One, one projection was a, a million and a half people to be driven uh, into poverty, 300,000 children. What can you explain about that? Yeah, so, so in effect, it's absolute poverty. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, the absolute poverty line rises with inflation. So if we expect that the absolute poverty line is going to go up by 9% and incomes are going to go up by a much lower percentage, then that means that a lot of people are being driven below that absolute poverty line. Mm-hmm. Part of your question earlier was about kind of what the Chancellor had done and whether you yes. thought, would it be helpful to go through that? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, because 
it really was it really was quite shocking actually i think there were a, quite a there was a, a bit of an expectation that the chancellor would do a bit more and in terms of uh, you know sort of you know you try to manage expectations well, i can't do everything it's like no you can't do everything but you should do yeah. something, Maybe something yes. yeah yeah that's kind of kind of where we are so so beyond the kind of operating if we kind of think about what else uh, the uh, you know chancellor's solution was tax cuts mm-hmm. uh, for which you know largely benefit higher income and middle income households yes. who are as mm. we've already kind of discussed uh, less, I mean, they will be hit by this kind of cost of living raise, but they're much more able to reduce their costs Correct. in other yeah. ways. Um, and then similarly, the fuel duty cut, which um, first of all is a drop in the ocean, even if, you know, in terms of, even if you drove lots and lots and have three SUVs or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it a pound a tank? Yeah, I mean, it's... Basically, yeah, it, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, particularly low-income groups, uh, they either drive less or they're much far less likely to own a vehicle. Mm-hmm. So actually, it does very little for them. And in the grand scheme of the challenge ahead, it's doing very little for anyone, mm. to be honest. Uh, and homelessness is a topic um, Ellie brought up. Do you have any uh, information on how much... Uh, or, uh, on, on the increase of homelessness and how policies on access to housing... Um, have been mm. driving people into poverty as of recent as well. Yeah, homelessness has been rising year on year before we came across kind of the, the pandemic. Um, it, it was briefly reduced for a period when the government had its everyone in, I think it was called, where it's, you know, which kind of, um, you know, it, it was almost an a, a, a evidence that the government could in fact do something about mm. kind of reducing homelessness. Which government it chose was it under? To. So the, the, current yeah, the Yeah, the current government. Boris. Uh, yeah, Boris, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, but that's now all kind of un- unwound and we're kind of back to square one on that. Um, and yeah, so clearly households already f- feeling under the pressure to make uh, costs, you know, make their rent payments, etc. Um, are going to find it increasingly difficult. I, mean, I don't have kind of projection in my head about what that might mean, but mm. certainly it's kind of inevitable that there are, you know, multiple people that are on that knife edge who are going to get pushed into mm-hmm. poorer housing situations. And, and the other thing as well is that local authorities um, who obviously have the role of uh, sorting this out... Mm. They have a million other things going on. You know, they um, have been savaged by a decade of cuts. They're much, uh, you know, not in a position to to kind of help as much as they would have been. How does a local authority, because I I got an email, sorry, a letter actually saying I'm going to get like a council tax rebate of £150 from Tower Hamlets. Where's that money coming from? Yeah, so that was um, announced by the um, government at the end of last year, yeah. um, and it's for everyone in the f- uh, council tax bands A, B, C to D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, um, basically that is one thing that the government has done uh, in order to try and alleviate uh, the, the the kind of cost of living. Yeah. Um, however, there's lots of people actually. So council tax is not a particularly good sort of predictor of mm. income. So there's plenty of people who actually potentially don't need financial support who will be receiving it through yeah. that kind of scheme. And similarly, there'll be people in high, so low-income people who just so happen to maybe live in a, a house that's a higher council tax band mm. who obviously won't get any automatic support. Yeah. So basically, the government's tried these kind of, rather than kind of tackling what it should have done, which is hit benefits and put money into kind of low-income households where we know that they are low-income and they need it, they've gone for these very broad brush kind of cash approaches. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so £150 obviously is better than nothing, but it, it you know barely scrapes the surface in terms yeah. of additional costs. So it's not really sufficient for, for anyone, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I want to start on poverty is because it's a fairly clear link um, between poverty and depression. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to become depressed, yeah. chiefly because uh, poverty is stressful. Being poor is 
stressful. Yeah. Um, mm, I looked into research for that the other day, actually. Right. So I, I'm going to lead you into it. For, oh, for, but some, <laughs> some basic stats that we that I read read were that uh, people with income under twenty grand uh, in this was in the US twenty twenty thousand dollars are two times more likely two times more likely to become depressed than people on seventy uh, k wage which is quite re remarkable to be twice as likely. But also property from income, people who make money from property are 10 times less likely to get anxiety than people who don't make money from property. Mm. And that seemed like quite a That's remarkable wild. dispersion. Yeah. How does stress factor into depression, moving away from poverty? Oh my God, huge. How, uh, what, what is the link there and what, what is the trend? Well, I mean, like, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay, so with depression specifically there is yeah basically like a correlation slash not even correlation what's it called a causal connection between the two the mm -hmm. increase in stress equals more likely to get depression mm -hmm. basically like whatever you we all have our own individual like unique like genetically formulated but also environmentally managed um abilities to deal with stress yeah and you know as your stress levels go up so your resources around you that you use to manage those that stress mm -hmm. are used. And when you get to the, the end of your resources, be that your genetic, your environmental, whatever factors you use to, to manage that, the closer to the top of that you get, the more likely you are to become depressed. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of people that are being signed off work with mental health issues, most of the time it will be put down to stress mm. for whatever, from, from whatever part of their life. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking at research the other day. Mm -hmm. It was saying that, it looks specifically at the um, the effect of an increased number of stressful events on likelihood of getting mental health problems. Right. And they were saying it, it factored in like controls for different elements. And it said that the research showed that the more stressful events you have, it is, tr it is true, you will be more likely to become depressed. I think, that, I think that applies to me, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. in terms of my story. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? For yeah. sure. Yeah. Just, mm. just stages of trauma throughout my life, mm -hmm. especially, especially what I experienced before I was like the age of 17, which we can get into later. Mm -hmm. But that resonates with I'm me the most. Yeah, no, I mean, here's what it is. But like that bit about going through these moments throughout your life mm. and the correlation between that and getting depressed definitely resonates with me. And so, yeah, sorry to hear yeah, that, obviously. Yeah. No, that's cool. Horrendous. But yeah. I mean, obviously we all go through Do you things, want to sing a Okay, um, it's meant to be, it's meant to be, it's meant to be R&B. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, but I demonstrated that. R&B in Newport. But <sighs> How about, in, oh, Goldie Looking Chain? I don't know. Is that R&B? <laughs> I, mean, oh, no. I mean, they bang. Yeah, yeah, no, they, <laughs> they, they did their thing for a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's not R&B. Um, my life <laughs> no. was stole, oh, and now I never know. Some Kelly Rowland? Just pull that one out. Pull that one out. All I can think of is Destiny's Child. That's a stereotype fulfilled. Welsh people are meant to be able to sing. I've heard that before. Yeah, man. We are. We've got such nice choirs. Yeah. Honestly, the pipes. Wait, I've got something else to add as well. So think about it in just in just in terms of an increased number of stressful events equals more likely to have depression slash mental health problems. If you're someone who is part of the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, who is struggling with many more yeah. life like daily mm. events that are going to be causing like can you imagine if you haven't got any money and then you're like going to the shop trying to buy like your daughter some fruit or whatever and mm -hmm. you can't afford the fruit you know yeah. even tiny little events like that throughout your day you are much more likely to have those yeah if you are on the lower end so it makes complete sense that for sure poverty for sure. and in, in all the uh examples that i've heard recently from friends um who kind of 
have spoken about feeling down but haven't known that they're depressed or have are probably in a place where they need to go and seek help to be diagnosed it's because they find themselves more stressed uniformly mm. there's no one who's just kind of feeling a little bit tired and down people mm. feel tired as a result of feeling depressed but it's stress it's stress to do with either not liking their jobs which is a horrendously stressful position you've got no agency or creativity or no outlet or mm. no you don't feel any importance uh, and your sense of status is threatened um, or not having a job or not having a job yeah. equally mm. extremely stressful whether it's to do with their rent going up to a level that they can't afford anymore or having to move house um, yeah. e extremely stressful whether it's uh, relationships that have fallen apart or um, images, uh, senses of self-worth as a result of what they've seen uh, on social media, which is another topic we'll get into at some point. Um, big one. Big mm. one. Um, stress seems to be the most common factor um, that I hear. Yeah, I, I think of it as well as kind of like a catch-all for the effects of the problems that you have in your life. Mm -hmm. So like, for example... Like, like, again, just going straight back to having a really low income, like mm. any type of issue that you have that's going to make life more difficult for you is going to produce stress, mm -hmm. like no matter what that is. Yeah. So it's like almost like a bit of a catch all, I think, yeah. mm. for something that is going to be going to make your life difficult. Mm. So a really interesting study that I read about um, in this book that, that I've been reading called Lost Connections by Johan Hari, which is a bit problematic because he's definitely a very sus journalist, but he's written a very good book and he also has one of the most viewed... <laughs> TED Talks of all times. Mm -hmm. Why is he uh, such a journalist out of interest? Because he was uh, caught plagiarizing multiple times uh, and then uh, was also yeah. found, uh, he got into beef um, with someone who ed edited his Wikipedia or something. Anyway, not much ethics as a journalist, but someone who writes very well on mental health and well, has multiple bestsellers on addiction. Supposedly writes very supposedly well. You might be bigging up someone else's bars, Johnny. Could be. You know, yeah, well, whoever, whoever bought the whoever bars. Wrote, whoever wrote, whoever wrote those bars. Yeah, lost, like, clicks to you. Clicks to you. Clicks to you. But the point that he made, and something that, that actually that resonated with me, really, um, is that there's this image of people who work high up in organizations, high up in corporations, and the bosses have the most stressful jobs, Right? pay the cost to be the boss, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that people kind of lower down, uh, their work isn't as, as stressful. Um, their, their jobs are a bit easier. That's why they're not paid the big money. And there was an Aussie scientist, I can't remember his name, uh, who uh, went in to do a study, I think it was at HMRC. And they found that a bunch of tax collectors were committing suicide uh, and they wanted to find out. And the same bloke had done a study in the civil service um, and was asked to come back um, and, and, and redo this study. And so they measured the relative cortisol levels between uh, levels of seniority mm. in the organization. And actually what they found was that although people at the top go through periods of stress when they're involved in big strategic decisions, mm -hmm. they're a lot less frequent. Yeah. Okay. And so like their outbursts of stress are quite high. But outside of those key moments fairly easy life mm. you get to make strategic decisions you tell people what to do mm. make quite a lot of money close the door have a nap in your office see you later right but the people at the bottom uh, and in particular in the case of hmrc who are not only doing all the work but are doing pretty unpopular work mm. right basically the traffic wardens of the money business nobody likes them mm. nobody likes hmrc but there was until they send them rebates. Yes, but no one. I haven't had a rebate in years. They they took five thousand of Queen's pounds off me this 5, year. Five? How much? Yeah, five thousand. What 000, yeah. the hell? 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. I'm Shit. flying. Uh, I'm flying economy to Rio. Um, <laughs> Poor you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're swimming to Rio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like telling yourself, exactly. I'm flying economy. I'm, I'm swimming. Selling my meat to the sharks. <laughs> I'm swimming. Pause. Um, hella pause. Hella pause. <laughs> <laughs> but what they found um, was that the more constant levels of stress, one because these people were working harder daily than the boss. Two, mm. the work was very unrewarding unfulfilling mm. and their sense of gratitude from the organization is very low mm. they get no thanks for being tax collectors it was very stressful but three just because they earn less just because they earn less and their pay packet uh was lower all of these things contributed to a much higher level of stress than senior executives mm. and this is kind of the wider point that i've been getting at and why millennials are so screwed because so many of the jobs that we take are thankless pay low real wages um, and have no creative outlet and no agency, right? And that's the most stressful thing that you can do. Um, being fortunate enough to be either self-employed or be a writer or um, have mm. some kind of creative outlet with agency over your output and earn income for it is a blessing and a yeah. privilege and people work very hard for it and mm. most deserve it. But the vast majority of people are not in that position. And with the rise of things like the gig economy um, and this um, fallacy of the necessity of a degree, which has mm. fundamentally changed our education to job pipeline, mm. what we're seeing is more and more people who basically burden themselves and mortgage their futures uh, into a state of debt to earn the right to work for someone else less stressed than them, who makes all the money, mm so that they can get no thanks and struggle to get by at the end of the day. Now, we've done the should you go to university or not debate before multiple mm. times. What was the outcome? My view is that we should remodel the education system to give more vocational training at a younger age mm -hmm. and allow more people to cool. leave 16 to 18 and increase uh, access and provisions to apprenticeships yeah. uh, and get people into direct industries. Can yeah. you explain to us, Henry, what, how the job market has changed um, since 2008? and what kind of job market millennials have, have walked into and how the burden of debt has impacted um, their capacity in the economy. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I'll have a go. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think actually some of these changes probably came in a little bit earlier than 2008. You know, sure. we're talking about a, a larger structural shift in the economy. Sure. Um, a lot of it sort of a, a growth in sort of uh, services, for instance. Yep. And particularly when we're talking about young people um, and kind of number of people working in particular sectors, which have uh, particularly poor job quality as well. So um, retail, you know, huge employer, yep. um, quite uh, pretty poor wages, very limited. Um, opportunities for progression etc mm -hmm. um, uh, accommodation and food that kind of thing you know these are sectors that have ballooned um, and they are done um, largely by uh, young people um, and you know there are just very few opportunities there um, and yeah what we've also seen obviously is a rise in more insecure kind of employment type contracts so you mentioned zero hour contracts so um, certainly the case that they have been growing uh, across the economy but you know the, the, the vast majority of the people who undertake work under zero hours contracts are young people yeah. so uh, you know it's like more than one in ten of people under 25 for instance um, wow so yeah you know it's, uh, it's it's very widespread for those people mm -hmm. it's very easy if you're if you're kind of far removed from that to be like that's not an issue but but for that for obviously for that group of workers it's huge sure um 
So yeah, um, I mean, the question of sort of job quality is why I think as a society, we kind of take it for granted that, uh, you know, most jobs are a bit rubbish Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, there needs to be kind of more thought about kind of what what is a job? What is the point of a job? Mm -hmm. um, How can they be more meaningful? How can we ensure there is actual progression, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera? Um, It's just not something, it's like an afterthought. You know, we're just kind of just doing the economy and just kind of everyone (laughs) getting in on it. Um, And uh, it's making people, as you say, unhappy and unfulfilled fulfilled um but uh yeah it's not particularly um you know there's no kind of movement to try and try and make things better i think and what would a prescription be for remodeling the job economy what would a more healthy job economy look like and how would we restructure the workplace yeah, so I mean, uh, there's <laughs> that's a big, that's yeah, a big yeah, ass yeah, question. It's a, it's a big question. Bro, Henry to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Good luck, son. I mean, I can I can push in some directions if you like. So, yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is kind of uh, giving people more freedom and autonomy and um, flexibility in the workplace is mm-hmm. actually quite an important thing. Mm-hmm. So the pandemic has a lot. Um, f- for instance, I mean, home working. For instance, no, you yeah. know, I, I knew uh, some people before who uh, you know it was impossible for them to work from home apparently, but then the pandemic came along and suddenly they can and. <laughs> made a big difference yeah. so there's kind of analogs to that whereby things can change it's mm-hmm. just that we, you know em- employers and bosses need to be prompted to actually allow more flexibility for instance um, so that's one thing but actually it's also about kind of if you're thinking about sorry it was a big question with a, with a, big, with a big answer yeah. I suppose yeah. um, if you're just thinking about the structure of the economy and like which sectors you would like to grow yeah. and kind of government can kind of have a role there potentially and sort of you know so if there are kind of good quality jobs they might be in things like science technology you know engineering that kind of thing mm-hmm. Can we become more competitive in those areas and grow those sectors? Mm-hmm. Um, because basically the issue is, is that because we have an economy that is so reliant on the kind of poor quality work, yeah. you know, very large retail accommodation, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, having an economy that is so reliant on that and also the, the profits of those companies, right, are reliant basically on workers being treated quite poorly. And like cheap, it's not, cheap labor. Yeah, cheap yeah. labor, indeed. Um, and uh, that's a terrible business model to carry on with. So mm-hmm. we actually need to kind of probably shrink those sectors and think about uh, industrial policy for instance which might be able to enlarge other sectors of the economy where people will be able to make better use of uh, the skills that they've got guys talk about retail has triggered me oh (laughs) since we're talking about low quality work are you a primani veteran or something sometimes i just want to go into a clothing store right and say my friend Mm. there's no xl in this shirt oh and for them to say something other than sorry mate Everything we have in stock is it's out on the shop floor. <laughs> I want you to at least pretend that you're going to the stock room check. to check. Just me. go check. There's no way. Yeah, just in take the five last minutes. A hundred times yeah. I've asked in a hundred different stores oh that God. everything I've asked for isn't in stock. Like the illusion of that extra it's, bit of hope. Like, uh, oh, I'll just check just, for you. Just yeah. let me know you did everything you could you, like to you get cared. me that extra. You cared for a minute. You cared for a minute. Let me tell you, I used to work for Marks and Spencer when I was like in. Six form. Top quality M&S retail, though, to be fair. Constantly full. The back room, the stock room, full of spares, full of other sizes. <laughs> no one ever, wa- no one ever wants to go. You should go shop in M&S. <laughs> go, back to be, go back to being Lord's so, M&S. Sorry, guys. We just had to get that out. Well, this is a safe space. I feel you. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a safe space. But yeah. going back to the point you make, like, beyond uh, macro level readjustment of yeah. the key industries of the economy, right? This is something that, that does piss me off in that you get companies who send out multiple PR emails internally and externally and make a big hoo-ha about caring about mental health. We really mm. care about mental health. We're going to get uh, a consultant for five grand to come in and then we're going to hire another HR person on 40 grand a year, which isn't enough. Anyway, they should be paid more. 
and then we're going to maybe we've got maybe a budget of 250 grand to yeah. really project that we care about mental health right it would probably cost half of that to get everyone set up on teams mm. so they could work from home three days a week yeah. and that would have a much larger material mm. mental health benefit right yeah. and this is kind of the point that i keep making when i said at the beginning that capitalism is killing our kids these are policy choices mm. these are policy choices that companies and governments make the government in the spring statement decided to transfer wealth from uh, via uh, an increase in national insurance mm. um, to fund a cut uh, in income tax. And they chose to do so by increasing uh, the number of people who pay their student loans early yep. and increasing the uh, time by which you will pay it off. Mm -hmm. We made the point on episode 37 that now there's a 40 year uh, time limit. Uh, someone who graduates at the age of 22 could very feasibly be working until they're 62 years old yep. until they pay off their student loan, right? These are policy choices. Yep. Companies and Tories, the interest of capital more generally, because they're basically aligned, can do more. And it's on us, it's on people um, to present, well, this is kind of where I end up going fucking, just everyone fucking unionize. But it's on us to put pressure um, on companies and it's on us to get them to recognize um, that there are policies that, that they can that they can take so when I said how do we change what, what changes can we make what, yeah. what structure I kind of find maybe a poorly worded question I wasn't necessarily asking for, for you to formulate an industrial plan yeah well that's, that's a relief <laughs> although although you did noble attempts although you did from your armchair Absolutely. although you did yeah. what what are the small policy changes that employers can make yeah I mean actually so so yeah, so kind of more flexibility and kind of grasping mm -hmm. the nettle in terms of allowing people to do work where they need it to be done, you know, cutting out, to be honest, unnecessary meetings and that kind of thing. I mean, this is, you know, like there is definitely stuff that you could do. I, I mean, I think uh, employers need to think about how they could be reducing working time. So obviously mm -hmm. kind of four day week kind of conversations or to be honest, maybe not a four day week tomorrow, but, but maybe a 4.5 day week and yeah. thinking mm -hmm. about how you cut out the kind of unnecessary stuff, mm -hmm. even adding an extra, you know, reducing working time by half a day a week would make an enormous difference to people's well-being. They just introduced the 4.5 day week in the UAE, right, as well, in Dubai. Have they? Abu Dhabi, yeah, Interesting. yeah, yeah. So they, they aligned their week to our week because yeah. their working week was Sunday to mm. Thursday. Yeah. yeah. And then they made it four and a half yeah. instead. So they wow. did Monday to Friday. There's a Cambridge it. study going on at the moment that involves like four 40, days a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah with four like days a week. 60 companies from yeah. the UK. Sign me up, baby. So that's what I was going to yeah. ask you. We've done, we've done UBI in quite a bit of depth yeah. before. Mm. Uh, and it is something that I was going to touch back on again here. But what does the data suggest so far in terms of the loss to productivity of a four day week? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly mm. I think it will depend quite a lot on the workplace. So I think in some workplaces, it's very apparent that there is potential for, for there to be a 4.5 day week tomorrow. You cut out your unnecessary, you cut out presenteeism, you get, yeah. you, you're yeah. more productive in the time, you're happier, and then that makes you more productive in the workplace yeah. as well. And so there is kind of evidence uh, from trials that have been done that actually, you know, it is a, it is a move, good movement forward for a lot of workplaces. Mm -hmm. um, will it work for all workplaces? Possibly not, but does that mean that, you know, we shouldn't be trialing it, we should be trying to pull in and the widest range of, uh, you know, what, what you don't want to happen is, oh, it's reduced working time for office workers only. I think that would mm -hmm. be a that would be a disaster, actually, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, not everybody works in an office. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, yeah. Uh, but good yeah, for the I office think, workers. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think there is promising findings around that. Um, and certainly in terms of, 
um, it being attractive for employers actually because um, it's attractive, you know, in terms of trying to attract talent and that kind of thing and retain people, you know, it helps if they're not burnt out. Sure. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a way mm. of, um, you know, attra attracting really good people. Um, and yeah, when it has been evaluated, it's going well. And yeah, you know, kind of um, sort of um, measures which can kind of almost uh, push people into try, you know, to give it a go basically and, mm. and to be supported in kind of properly evaluating that and to convince businesses actually that mm, this might be quite a good idea. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to add, because I should, definitely should have said it earlier, was around unionizing <laughs> as well. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm disappointed I wasn't the first person to mention unionizing. <laughs> he, so I mean, this, yeah. every, every week. Shout out Mumsy. Yeah. He, he always yeah. gets okay, the first. Okay, fine. Uh, well, that, that makes me feel better then. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, and this particularly relates as well to, um, you know, a lot of young people I was describing these kind of yes. poor quality job sectors. They are not remotely unionized. You know, Absolutely. Like no worker power whatsoever. Um, which is obviously one of the reasons why they've managed to get such a, a poor deal. And, and, and it's, it's very, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the solution is there mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, how to get unionization up, particularly in those groups. Yeah. Um, but it's key um, for workers to have a voice and uh, for, uh, you know, to, to introduce kind of collective bargaining as we've seen in kind of uh, Europe or as we mm. see more commonly in Europe and yeah. in the UK in the past. Yeah as a way of pushing up wages. Shout out the Amazon workers <laughs> yeah. of New Jersey who've just won their first major victory yeah, it's awesome. uh, with the right to, to unionize in their in Oh, their cool, warehouse. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Um, so we've addressed poverty as a cause of seeking treatment. How often do people come in and talk about work? How often is work a driver of why people have ended up uh, down a hole? Good question. Um, in GP land, we call it in, as like doctors, it's mm -hmm. like, GP land, <laughs> which is like where the majority of doctors end up working yeah. as a GP. Yeah. Very, very, very common. Mm -hmm. Hugely common. Yeah. Like work stress. And what are, the, what, are, is, what are the stresses? Is it people hate their job? Is it that uh, they don't feel fulfilled? Is it that they want to do something else? Is it that the place they work is shit? When people complain about work, what are they complaining about? Um, so workplace bullying is a big one. Mm. Hear about that a lot. Interesting. Which I think, interestingly, I think links back to power yeah. <laughs> obviously mm -hmm. and yeah. how power on both sides so the employer and the employee uh, affect our actions and mm -hmm. our emotions mm -hmm. um just hours length of time being in work and not having enough time outside of work mm -hmm. to decompress mm -hmm. those are the things that pop straight into my mind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we've covered quite a fair amount of the socioeconomic or the social side generally we'll end up coming back to it but genetics and the biological side play quite a large role in the reasons why people end up seeking treatment. Something that startled me when I was diagnosed with alopecia mm. was that essentially I'd always had the genetics for it to manifest. Yeah. And that was something that blew my mind. Mm. Um, what the doctor explained to me was that I had, I had just happened to go through something significantly stressful yeah. for my hair to then fall out. Yeah. But I'd always had alopecia. Mm. Um, how common is something like that in people discovering that they are depressed and what is the role of genetics oh, in, yeah. di in, in diagnosing yeah, yeah. depression? It's really common. It's so common. So I'll give you an example for, so let's say schizophrenia, which is like one of the most significant, like enduring serious mental health problems. Mm -hmm. Um, this is like a really common thing we see where number one, if you've got a family history of having it, you are like millions more times likely to get it. And you're much, if you, if say for example, one of your close, your first degree relatives, so mum, dad, siblings mm -hmm. 
has something like schizophrenia, you are at m- much higher risk. I think it's like potentially up to like 30% or higher, wow. more increased risk of having that yourself, right? right? Because you just have the mechanics of it in your brain already. It's there. So genetics is, like I don't often see, what the, the moment that I realized, I remember I was working in Paris in a hospital over there doing psychiatry. And I was just like, I just had this moment where I realized, I was like, every single patient's got a family history of mental problems. Like, mm-hmm. I just realized all of a sudden, I was like, mm. family history, family history, family history, family history. It's, I don't see many people who don't have that. Mm-hmm. So genetics, really important. You know, you literally have a code for the way that your, your body parts are um, to be constructed, right? Mm. And so that code defines how they're constructed. And if you have the same code that your dad did and your dad has schizophrenia, you'll have the same constructions of, you know, body parts, essentially like tiny little brain mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll be much more likely to have it. Interestingly, though, the I'm not sure if I'm going to fully answer your question because I've forgotten what it was. But <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wanted to add right. on that topic is genetics is really important. But environment. Yes. Yeah. Which is where I was going to lead on next anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has that so far answered the question that you yeah, asked yeah, yeah. me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then I'll leave the rest of you to continue on to. Well, it was, um, as far as my understanding is of kind of like a top level overview is that a lot of people, a lot of people have the preconditions genetically mm. for depression. But is it not really your social environment that unlocks those genes in the same way that I always had alopecia, but I always had hair until I didn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How often is it actually that it's people's social situations and what what weighting would you give to nature versus nurture in terms of the manifestation of depression in people? Mm. So if you don't have the genetic aspect, then you're much less likely to get it. Okay, right? really? So, yeah. So then how do people who don't have the genetic aspect develop mm-hmm. depression? Because I would imagine that uh, there's, I would say probably the majority of people who I've spoken to recently don't have it in the family Mm. because people do have it in the family go and get help earlier just because there's a cultural appreciation right so how do how do people realize if they don't have the genes Mm -hmm. so interestingly i think that environment does play a huge role for show um the when you think about depression specifically there used to be these like back in like mid 1900s and Mm -hmm. like late 1900s we used to think of it as like a either a totally biological thing Mm or something that was affected. We used to really put an emphasis on there being such a thing as biological depression. Right. And I do think that there is, but because like I said, if you don't have it in your family, you're much less likely to get it. It was evidenced in my patients that I saw, like everyone had a family history. Yeah. Yeah. But imagine like, if I give you an analogy, right? Imagine you're, um, you've built like a tower, like a Jenga. Imagine you're building a Jenga tower, right? So, and you are, and your Jenga tower is like your arrangement of, your genes, right? right? So one family who has, um, I mean, this is like quite a crude analysis, a quite a crude a- analogy and it's, you know, but it's, it's good to, to illustrate. Mm-hmm. So like a family who doesn't have any genetic disposition to mental health has all of their Jenga blocks perfectly aligned. Yeah. And so there's no real chance of that Jenga, that Jenga tower falling over unless a car smashes into it. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But cars can smash into it. Mm. I mean, obviously, you never really have a car around Jenga. <laughs> <laughs> a toy truck or the dog. The dogs run into the Jenga tower, shall we say? The That's quite a good metaphor because it only needs a, a tiny little toy mini to yeah. knock over a good 
block a Jenga. Yeah, exactly. Right. But um, it still can be knocked over. So say, for example, I sometimes think of it as like a kind of a little connection of something in your brain. Mm-hmm. And the more stress you put on that connection, the less like the connection is to be formed. Right. Less like it's to break. Right. Mm-hmm. So the more stress that you put on that, literally stress, like we were saying, mm-hmm. um, for loads of different reasons, the more stress you put on it, the more likely it is to break, the more likely you are, you are to experience alopecia yeah. or yeah. depression. And if you've already got a bit of a weak connection because of your genetics, if your Jenga blocks aren't really beautifully aligned. Yeah then it's going to take a lot less pressure on that to push you over into something like alopecia or depression. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's something that, that resonates with me because the periods that I've gone down a depressive hole have been at the end of very stressful strains, uh, chains of events. Mm. So I, I, this is where you end up getting into the personal stuff, but mm. I, uh, when I was about 11, went to go live with my dad, mm. who was emotionally abusive. And I went through three years of living through that Mm -hmm. trauma. And then when I finally kind of escaped and came back Mm. to my mum, got a scholarship to go to boarding school. Mm. So rather than dealing with all that stuff, I went to boarding school. The worst place you can send a child who's already teetering mentally, right? Shock horror. I got kicked out two years later. Mm. Um, So when I came home, when I came back to Hackney, that was when it all fell apart. That's when I was uh, going to the John Scott Centre. And that's when I used to walk home through Smalley Estate in Stone Newington. And I remember being really pissed off at Ken Livingston for making the 73 bus a bendy bus. Because if it was a route master, I'd have walked in front of it. Damn bendy buses were crazy. Oh, really? Yeah. You'd have walked in front of the route master. I'd have walked, in, I'd have walked in front of it. And the bendy bus, as long, it was also fucking shit to cycle next to. <laughs> um, but I just didn't think it would do the job, mm. right? Oh, really? And, and, it was, and it was at the end of that five-year period, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then again, when I was about... 21, 22, I'd, I'd lost a couple of family members. Um, I'd uh, changed role at work. I was also smoking far too much fucking weed. Um, <laughs> and one thing led to another. Did Enjoyable it, though. <laughs> at the time, until it started giving me panic attacks. Mm. And that was when I was diagnosed with, with the anxiety source uh, on top of the depression. Mm. Um, and again, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, like something that just came out of nowhere. It was at the end of a mm. string of events, right? The same thing happened to me again in 2018. Um, mm-hmm. my, I, after my dad had died in 2016, mm. uh, the alopecia came, but that actually didn't really lead to a depressive episode because I'd spent the next two years dealing with a court case as a result of his suicide. Oh, really? Uh, and so that stress, nev- I never actually was able to either process the grief or manifest depression mm. because I was dealing with it. And then I changed job which was extremely stressful because I kind of shot up in leagues in terms of like the level of investment banking that I was working in Mm. and wasn't ready for it. And I'd also come out of a long-term relationship. Mm. So those three things at the same time, dun, 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 boom, got pneumonia. Environmental factors. Right? Yeah. Literally got pneumonia. And you're something like three times more likely to get ill, are you not, if you are depressed? It it leads to real physical danger, right? Um, But this goes back to the point that I was making before in that I think that there is a lot of discourse and this is something that I don't like about the discourse where people say that it's in your genes and it's in, you have a chemical, this chem, this idea of a chemical imbalance in your brain. Well, you, mm. I think you would know as a scientist, nobody knows what a chemically balanced brain looks like. It's mm. like a ridiculous idea. And it's different for everyone as well. Right. Mm. The thing I don't like about this idea that it's in your genes, right? Oh yeah, go on. That's basically, basically centers the issue of depression around the sufferer, right? It's your fault. It's your fault that you're depressed because it's in your genes. But even worse, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You cannot, mm. you cannot impact the thing that's making you ill. And the thing that's making you ill is you. 
it's your fault and it's your problem, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where we end up, uh, it's another bugbear of mine, is that because we have such a powerful discourse on, uh, on the causes of depression, either being genetic or chemical, mm. that informs our method of treatment. And so we give kids and we give young people I walked in for my first fucking meeting um, about um, about my anxiety disorder and boom, I was given diazepam mm. on the dot, right? And I took it the first time. It made me feel like an idiot. And I've always oh, really? been very, very careful about my, well, about my brain because that's kind of like the tool that I have to make money. Worked in the city. Mm. I don't have a degree. And as a bricklayer needs their hands, I've always felt like I needed my brain. Mm. I've always traded on my brain, took diazepam. Fucking hell, I was slow. Didn't want to do it anymore. Right. But so much of our treatment, because we have this discourse about the chemical and genetic role of depression, uh, leads us away from from really exploring the factors um, which are society, mm. I think. Right. And the environmental factors, which are much more likely to make you uh, depressed. It wasn't because my, both of my parents had had histories of mental health that made me ill. It was because of living with my dad. That made me depressed. Yeah, yeah. Right? That was like the thing that pushed. It was like the little toy truck running right. into but your But it wasn't my blocks. genes. It was the, it was it was the was toy truck. Experience. Yeah. It was the experience, right? Uh, and it wasn't that my brain was um, chemically imbalanced. It was that I'd gone through childhood trauma. And that was what made me depressed. And there's a quote. I can't remember the guy uh, who said it. But it goes something along the lines of, it's no measure of health to adjust to a sick society. Right? And yeah. this is where I think the whole discourse around depression needs, needs to change. Because people, f people are conditioned to think that the reason that they're depressed is because it's something inside them. And often, very often, it's nothing to do with them. And this is what makes people shameful about being depressed. Mm -hmm. This is what makes people fearful to admit it because they perceive, because the discourse is that it's something that they've done. And worse than it being something that they've done, it's also at the same time something they can't do anything Change about. It's <laughs> like shaming, essentially. Right? Yeah. And that's awful. Uh, and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So one of the key drivers that makes people feel shit about themselves is social media. And I guess everyone's been talking, waiting to talk about social media and I'll always let you pop off. But for me, social media is only a very small part of the problem, actually. I think social media is a symptom of a wider cause. I think it's that our society has been geared, neoliberal capitalism has geared us to be much more individualistic. And our removal from communities and the way of life that we live where we go to work and we then go home and stay inside our homes and eat our dinner and don't go out until we go out to work again, that is unnatural. We are not evolved as mammals to be isolationary figures, right? And that loneliness driven by an individualistic society is going to make us sick. And something that shocked me in, in when I was doing some reading recently, apparently, was that mm. the level of cortisol measured in the brain from someone suffering from loneliness is about the same as the cortisol level experienced in the brain when someone's about to punch you in the face on the street. Oh, that's really sad, isn't it? Right? The entire way that our society has geared us to be individualistic and therefore lonely, right? There's the, the story about standing in the middle of Times Square, standing in the middle of Trafalgar Square, thousands of people around, no one gives a shit. You have no connection to those people, right? And that's what I think social media is and does. Right, it puts you, it makes you a product of advertising uh, and spews out a fake image of you to people that you love most of an unattainable standard that you can't achieve and makes you spend your money getting there, right? But is social media the issue itself? I don't think so. 
I think it's just a symptom. I think it's a symptom of a society that has conditioned us to impoverish ourselves, to work for things that won't make us healthier, won't make us happier, that we can't afford, that even if we do get them, mm. don't make us feel any better for them anyway. Uh, and it's, it's, it's got very little to me. How often, how often does social media come up? Um, so a lot in child and adolescent mm. mental health. Mm-hmm. I think the generation Gen Z, I think they are even more impacted by social media. Actually in conversation with patients, excluding the child and adolescent population. So that's essentially over an 18 and under, mm-hmm. under 18. Not that much, but... I see it a lot more in that age range. Mm. And I definitely, I definitely think that it's, I mean, I don't know what my opinion is exactly on what you've said as in whether it is a symptom or, you know, where I would, where I would lie on that kind of line. But I do think that it is a problem mm. for specifically the younger generations who've like grown up on it. Mm-hmm. And, who, think, and who are being targeted yeah. as well. Yeah. I was reading about this the other day. So apparently a lot of one, uh, to be honest, it, it was a journalist it was an article. It wasn't like a scientific research thing, but I was, it was re- I was reading about how that generation is actually, because they've grown up with it, they're used to that. They're like, they expect to be targeted, which is interesting. Mm. So I wonder if that is more of an issue for us, our generation, who are yeah. a little bit less used to that. Um, and so the younger generation kind of prepare themselves and put, them, put, them, put themselves out there kind of with the knowledge that that's going to happen, mm-hmm. expecting it to happen. And they yeah. almost would be like surprised if brands didn't target them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's more of an issue for our, yeah. our kind of age group, pers- potentially. Yeah. I, also have, I also have a few challenges for the things you just said. Not, oh, cha- not challenges, but just to, because to, to be honest with you, I don't know whether they're right. Sure. <laughs> Go some, off, Some sis. questions. Go off. Pop off. Well, just questions to see what you think about this. Right. So like... And I don't know whether what, where I lie on them, to be honest, but just things that popped up when you were talking. So mm-hmm. number one, uh, loneliness versus being punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, this is less of a question or a challenge, more of like an understanding that I have of it that I'd like to share. Please. So anxiety also produces like a cortisol rise, yeah? Yeah. Um, and it's like, it harks back to a time when we anxiety was essential for our survival. Absolutely. Yeah. And in the same way, the cortisol levels we're feeling when we're lonely yeah. is suggested. And I probably believe that that is also linked to survival. Cause like you said earlier, we're not meant to be alone. Yeah, exactly. So mm. it's, I find that really interesting that mm. like, you know, the survival response we have for being punched in the face, it's mm-hmm. literally like a survival response being lonely. Yeah. Mm. One thing I wanted to say, mm. um, any opinions on that? No facts. Yeah. Interesting. Facts. Big facts. Mm. Um, then the second thing I was going to say was about, um, the fact that you were talking about depression, um, and it being a dangerous thing to have it, to, to call it genetic, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and I definitely see what you mean. And I think, you know, if that's, that narrative's pushed, for sure. But what do you think about the fact that a heart disease, for example, would, has definitely got both a genetic and an environmental context? And it's not a difficult or shaming thing to admit that. Yeah. Well, it might be in some ways, but do you, can you, do you think that there's like a, specifically about depression, there's a, or maybe it is the case that all illnesses, when we talk about there being a genetic kind of link, mm-hmm. do potentially bring up feelings of shame for people who suffer from anything. Heart disease, mm. any type of lung disease, you know, problems with your hips. Yeah. Mm. What do you think about that? So on the heart on the heart example, I don't think that there's much of a stigma about being diagnosed with a heart condition. Mm. 
Uh, and I think if people feel their chest going funny, they're likely to go to a doctor very quickly because mm. there's no embarrassment mm -hmm. about being diagnosed with arrhythmia yep. in the same sense as it's culturally mm. unacceptable in some spaces to be diagnosed with depression or you're just expected so like to get on with it. the stigma around it right. makes it... Makes it less easy to wear. Mm. That's interesting. So I guess the final grand area or topic that we want to touch on uh, was on your master's thesis. Oh, yeah. And the different cultural approaches. That's really interesting. Uh, and then we're also going to compare the different uh, approaches to economy as they relate to the different cultural approaches. It's um, so funny because I wrote three points down to raise after listening to you. And the first two I just said, the third one was going to be linked to that. So that's like quite nice. Segway kings. Off you go. Boom. So you spoke about an individualistic society. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my master's was, oh my God, it was the best year of my life. Like I loved it. I had such a good time. I was up in Manchester. Um, I did a master's in the title of the master's was like quite poncy. It's like humanitarianism and conflict response. But <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm Topical. loving it. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was the first time I ever learned anything about anything other than medicine, like since leaving school. Right. Anyway, my master's dissertation was on, um, if you want to put it in like a, a kind of like a medical uh, if you want to frame it medically, it was transcultural psychiatry. But basically the aim was to look at a set of guidelines that treat mental health in an emergency setting. But they're like international guidelines. Right. So they are giving general international international advice for mental health management in emergency settings. But what, what I found out was, um, is that, I mean, I'm sure everybody's aware, in this country and the way we think of mental health is a very Western approach. Right. And what does that mean? What is a Western approach? So, after the Enlightenment, when science became, like, and, you know, the scientific theories and uh, as a way of learning and... When, when science became racist. Whoa, I've never heard that before. I'd be interested to hear your opinions <laughs> on that, though. Oh, my God. Uh, to be honest, my brain is too small to understand that at the beginning. You'll have to explain that to me later. Will you? Yeah, I'm... Mean, Banging. Explain it <laughs> now, if you like. Do you want to? Yeah, sure. the, whole, yeah, yeah. the whole philosophy of the Enlightenment was essentially yeah. that Europe had a moral responsibility to civilize the rest of the world. Mm, and okay. there, was a, there was a moral uh, imposition on um, the European race mm. to uh, assert or to utilize its cultural uh, and evolutionary supremacy um, to bring light to the rest of Got the world. You. Uh, and so by uh, invading, colonizing, enslaving Africans and indigenous Americans, we're mm. really doing them a favor. Uh, and actually I've very, got you. It's a very good book called The Dawn of Everything by, uh, may he rest in peace, David Graeber of Bullshit Jobs fame. Uh, and the early chapters of the book about the comparison in uh, philosophy between, um, not to stray too far from the science, but that comparison in philosophy between the French who ended up in um, South America and the indigenous Americans um, uh, actually up in Canada uh, and how basically all the Canadians uh, and all the indigenous Americans thought that the Europeans were idiots. And why do they think we're idiots? Because we're constantly fighting each other, thinking of ourselves, not living in societies and working to make money for other people. Mm. Uh, and beyond like the social aspect and the overt racism that we just thought we were better cultures than these people who'd survived for thousands of years in their own identity, um, there was a scientific basis in that black people were inferior to white people mm -hmm. and, for, and because of that, we owed it to them to enslave them I got you. for their own good. Yeah. I mean, essentially, yeah, you pr you've just like better explained anything that I could have explained about the underlying like rationale behind um, like psychiatry, basically, mm -hmm. like <laughs> mm -hmm. in the world. So I, I 
we we've developed in the West, so America, American led, but UK also think about mental health in um, this bubble of being in this really individualistic society as a result of loads of different things. But one thing that I focused on my dissertation was a lack of um, like growth of like basically like organized religion. Mm. Um, and the, the, the kind of comparison that I looked at was between like the West and like the global South. Mm-hmm. So looking at how religion is much more um, like ties communities together mm. outside of the West basically. And how um, that impacts things like loneliness, us being more individualistic in the West, more community oriented outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and found that interestingly psychiatry and like the, which is the dominant approach to mental health management, mental health management in the UK and America is all modeled and all research done on it is basically done on white populations yeah. mm-hmm. in the West, right? Yeah. We come along and try We say like, oh, this person's got depression. We're going to treat it with this and da 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 da. Mm. Yeah, that'll work for the populations it's been modelled on. Yeah, but not outside of that. And there were there were two things that I found very interesting in the Asian context in particular. One, the first one was that if there, there was an experiment done where they took, a, I think it was a picture of JFK speaking to a crowd, mm. and they showed this picture to Westerners and they showed it to to Asians, and they asked each group to explain what they saw in the picture, and an overwhelming majority of the Westerners explained JFK speaking on stage. And an overwhelming number of Asians explain the crowd. Yeah. And it's just a difference in identity. It's a difference yeah, yeah, yeah. in cultural identity. so right? interesting? Yeah, yeah. And then the second one was on the treatment. And that's kind of, this is where I want to lead you in particular. Yeah, sure. Um, in that we've discussed ad infinitum um, about um, the use of drugs uh, to treat um, from the chemical perspective. But mm. there was an example of a farmer in Cambodia who lived in an area that had lots of unexploded mines from the, the, the American war in the 70s. And he one day walked over a landmine and it fucked him up, naturally. Mm. Uh, and so <laughs> he, um, he... It's a natural part of walking over a landmine. Yeah. It's, you rarely come off better than you went into it. <laughs> so uh, that naturally made him depressed. And so uh, yeah. the Cambodians, uh, so the Americans who were there were kind of asking this guy, like, what's going on, what's going on? And they ha- a doctor helped him seek treatment, right? And to cut a long story short, the method of treatment was that for this guy, um, there, was no, there was actually no word in Cambodian for an antidepressant. Didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But they decided that the method of treatment that would be effective for him was turning him from a rice farmer to a dairy farmer. Mm. And so the community bought him a cow. And the reason that he was depressed was because he was in physical pain, having to harvest the rice fields. And rather than Pfizer putting lorazepam into him, Mm. the community in the village bought him a cow that enabled him to produce milk. And that was beneficial for everyone. Mm -hmm. And because he wasn't in such pain anymore, he was no longer depressed. Mm. Uh, Now, that's very anecdotal. But I think it speaks to the point in combination with the other example that other cultures and other societies, and there are ironies in that other cultures that are more are explicitly community driven in comparison to the West have issues in discussing mental health, 100%. such as the black community. Black. But in this Asian context, it was, it was very clear that their culture had defined and driven the method of cure. Yeah. The flip side of everything you said about communities and stuff in the African culture or what communities as a result of religion in mm. African cultures, the flip side of that is that typically when mental health is discussed, it's usually refers back to religion and you've got mm-hmm. to pray away mm. through it. Mm. Right, oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's there's not really an understanding of what mental health really entails. You know, I think more often than not, African Caribbean communities see 
stress as being the main thing. You're mm -hmm. under stress. You need more rest. You know, if it gets really, really bad, nine times out of 10, it's always going to be, I'll pray for you. Make sure you pray. Go to church. Mm -hmm. So there are pros and cons to the religious slash community conversation within our culture. But mm. ultimately, it raises its ugly head in other ways as well because there's no real mm -hmm. understanding. And even the concept of, you know, being in therapy, right? If you're a mother, traditional African mother, for example, or father, mm. the idea, the concept of your kids or children being in therapy in some respects almost feels like a bit of a failure for them or they feel like a bit of a failure they don't really know how to broach the topic themselves. So it doesn't even necessarily become a, it doesn't necessarily become a learning experience for the family. Mm -hmm. So the person who's going through the therapy still is still quite alone uh, because he doesn't have the, the, the backbone of security with th that comes with his family understanding mental health a bit more. And this, that was kind of no, the, cul yeah. the cultural point that I was going to go down in that kind of fortunate that there is plenty of discussion about mental health within the Jewish community because there are, extreme examples of trauma within just course, two or three generations right uh, and also if you don't become a doctor your mother's ashamed of you anyway yeah um <laughs> too. yeah so we, well we lucky but you, you guys become medical doctors we become shrinks in ah, particular because yeah, yeah. it's cheaper to cure granny than actually pay for it yeah um but there is lots of discussion uh in the jewish community which 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 it, which there isn't in the black community no um why and what is your experience what was your experience of that growing up and how has that impacted people that you grew up with? it's just not given much of a thought honestly like i don't think i think about like my story and and yeah it's not really given much of a thought like actions from my dad for example in mm -hmm. my life have pretty much shaped who i am as a person but mm -hmm. what i was touching upon earlier when i was talking about my life has been made up of a bunch of moments which still scar me mm -hmm. um mm -hmm you mentioned trauma a lot overused word especially on social media so, so much i try not to use it so much mm. but you know by the time i was 17 i had been bullied um i'd seen a good friend stabbed 20 times um i had been robbed myself at knife point and at gunpoint two separate occasions my dad left home at 16 and the way he did it i just was going to school one morning or going to college he's like i'm moving to nigeria and I kind of knew that there were some things going on. It was ultimately racism that, that drove him back to Nigeria because they came to the UK in the 80s. Um, but one random Monday morning in Campbell, I was just like man of the house at 16 and a half, nearly 17 years old. Um, and I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that like, you know, I didn't want to burden my mum by asking for money because I know that, you know, him going to Nigeria didn't mean he was supporting. Mm -hmm. She was on her own. We were mm -hmm. on our own and there was, there was three siblings because um, I had a half brother who wasn't living with us at the time. Um, so I had to sell CDs from my... CD collection, mm -hmm. copies. But because of the college I was in, um, in Southeast London, which was basically middle to upper class kids, there was a lot of humiliation. I was made to feel a lot of humiliation because I was the hustler who was hustling to make money to, to eat at school. Um, then you transition through adulthood. My relationship with my dad was quite strained. Didn't really have much by way of mentorship or guidance of mm. any sort. And that goes back to my point about him not really understanding the implications of such a big decision. Because mm -hmm. again, I don't think mental health is a second, isn't, isn't really a thought mm. when people within our community make big decisions that, that affect the family. Mm. It's just this idea that everything will be okay. By God's grace, everything will be fine, you know? So yeah, essentially as a result of where I was mad at I was young, I stopped living for myself. And one thing that I always say to like the people around me, I always felt like the one of the reasons why I had this like niggling sense of like 
what's my place in this world was because no matter how well I was doing, I was studious, you know, I did well, grades wise, mm -hmm. went to university, went to a good university, got a good job straight after. It's because I, I don't really feel, despite all of that, I've lived entirely for me mm. because of what's happened or because of what happened rather when my dad left. I know a lot of people feel that way as well, but it was like, for me, I couldn't plan anything too big for myself because at any moment, somebody in my family could send me a text saying, I need X amount of money for this, or, you know, the bill, the bill can't be paid here. Can you help so and so forth? So I made the decision quite early that ultimately I was going to be the I was going to be the sacrifice. I was mm -hmm. going to sacrifice everything I actually wanted to do in this world mm. um, to be that person who everybody in the family can rely upon, no matter what. Um, so I have gone through continued stages of my life of just unhappiness because ultimately I haven't really felt as though I'm doing what I want. Mm. You mentioned something about like not having um, people who work in not as desirable jobs or shit jobs, whatever it was, not having sort of like a creative outlet. Mm -hmm. You know me, I've always made music. Mm -hmm. I do a podcast now. That was important for me as well. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of an example of where I'm taking back control mm -hmm. a little bit. But similar to you, I have these periods, which is like, they're, they're very, very dark. You know, like truth be told, like 2022 hasn't been great for me in that respect, either for various different reasons. But it's, oh, it's sorry to hear that yeah man. and it's weird because the, the coping mechanism is basically for me personally and I know a lot of people are the same it's just like immersion like I fully fully immerse myself in a bunch of things at once right the, po the podcast launch what was it October 2020 and that was five months after my dad died mm. right oh really a, a month after oh, I was I'm able, so sorry yeah, a month after I was able to to bury him we weren't right? long back yeah yeah so um so yeah I, I keep myself very very busy but when I physically can't take on anymore to your point that's typically when the crash comes mm -hmm. and besides a couple of sessions therapy wise i think as much as i criticize the older generation in my community i even think that sometimes i don't necessarily do all i need to do because it's just not the for standard yourself or routine yeah for myself in terms of mm -hmm. therapy and so on and so forth i don't feel like i still have that routine process mm -hmm. where i lean upon professionals to help so it, I think it's ultimately, I said all of that to say, I think it's still very much a bit of a plague within our community. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I ask you a question about this? Sure. Do you, do you mind if I ask you a question about your parents and when? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your dad's Nigerian? Both of them, yeah. They're both Nigerian. Yeah. And d were they born in the UK or in Nigeria? Nigeria. Okay, so would it be fair to say, I, I, I don't want to make any assumptions, but would you, would you say it would be fair to say that they grew up in a community that didn't really acknowledge mental health? 100%. Would you also... It sounds to me like their main coping mechanisms in their community for distress management were reaching out to God, prayer, yeah. um, essentially not reaching out to doctors and therapists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would you think it would be fair? To, I don't know. And this is just what I'm thinking about and what we've spoken about. Like them having moved to the UK and brought you up in the UK, it's almost like in a way you are even less supported in terms of mental health management because coming over to the UK, you're surrounded by people, probably also a lot of people who aren't, whose parents aren't from the UK, but people yeah. who are as well. You've come into, you've been brought up in a society where we're aware, like in, well, we're not aware. We are, we've been raised in a certain way to think about happiness, distress, mental health in a different way. And we've got our own different kind of routes to treat that, right? Yeah, yeah, in the yeah. UK. You, there's a generational difference between, you know, how my parents and me, manage mental health anyway mm -hmm. yeah but for you it's almost like your parents have even uh an even more different way of managing distress mm. 
than, for example, mine, because they weren't brought up in a society that recognizes distress and manages distress in the same way. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, in terms of like happiness levels, Mm -hmm. you're almost like even more like, you know, I don't know if this is the right word, but disadvantaged in maintaining your happiness. Because around you, you see people having their distress acknowledged, not just by families, but professionals with roots, kind of like trodden roots in place for management of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But for you, I mean, and also thinking about back in Nigeria, for example, where there isn't, I I mean, to be honest, I don't know. I've never been to Nigeria. I don't know what... You'd be right for assuming there was no real infrastructure around mental health, if that's the line you were going down, yeah. I was. For sure. But I was also thinking about the fact that, like, the fact is that everywhere in the world is distress. So in Nigeria, or wherever anybody is in the world, there is distress, and we will always have 100% of distress in every single country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking around us, we will see what the majority are going through and we'll be able to compare what, what we're going through to them. Mm. So potentially for your parents in Nigeria, they see how they manage distress as the, well, they would see how they manage distress as the norm and they would look mm. around and say, that's how my neighbor's managing distress. That's how my family member's managing distress. This is how I manage distress mm. and I'm happy with that. Yeah. You're here in a society where we've got all of these other roots, not saying it's necessarily better, mm. But you're not feeling that same like contentment and kind of like peace with your own distress management yeah. from your parents' support. So I yeah. wonder if that's like a factor in yeah, you're right. The and communities, the black communities, for example. Absolutely, and look, experience. Yeah, the advantage of you know having a, a cool mum who is aware and still at her sixty years plus is still learning a lot is you know she asks a lot more questions when she detects that I'm not okay. Back in the day, if I wasn't okay, she'd just be like, you're right, I'd be like, I'm fine. She would know that something up, but she wouldn't really necessarily probe. I think now she's learning. So I think the fact that the world is a little bit more aware mm-hmm. has its effects even, or positive effects, even on people from like my parents' backgrounds. My dad absolutely died depressed. Absolutely died depressed, oh, mm-hmm. right? And there, there are reasons, that. there are reasons, deeper reasons as to why that was, but it's something he always ran away from. Mm. It's something he always ran away from. And to answer your question directly, why? Because, because. Yeah. structure, right? When they come from Nigeria, Lagos, rural Nigeria in the 80s to the UK, mm. it's survival mode. We mm-hmm. do not have time to, to wallow. Exactly. The space mm-hmm. that you have in like, your brain d- doesn't we, give you. We've got, no, we've got no time. We've got to survive. Like we've got to hustle. We've, yeah. got, we've got to soften our Nigerian yeah, yeah, yeah. accent so we're not mocked in, in, in workplaces. We've got to, we got to take off the Nigerian traditional gown and dress a bit more British, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the concerns. Mm-hmm. Anything that we feel up here, especially at that time, um, yeah, it was just, they considered it stress, but stress that would ultimately have an end. Mm-hmm. And like, as you say, he's, he went back to Nigeria because it yeah. was intolerable for him. Yeah. So segueing from one community who didn't have particularly easy in the 80s, um, i.e. the black community in the UK, towards the gay community in the UK, um, and another community that you might argue is only really beginning to set up and have these structures acceptable in mainstream society. Mm-hmm. How is the treatment of mental health in the gay community? But is there is there a culture of discussing these things? But how are these issues addressed? Um, so I think that uh, in the in the gay community, I think things have have got a lot better in recent times. I think there is a lot more acceptance of all the kind of variations of sexuality in the UK uh, than there was before. I mean, even um, thinking about kind of even 10 years ago in terms of visibility on 
TV. Yeah. Who actually, you know, who was gay and on TV actually made a massive difference, I think, to mm. both perceptions of people growing up gay and needing to come out of the closet, but also their parents and their relatives mm. and who they thought could be gay and what, what being gay looked like. That's interesting. Who was a problematic gay growing well, up? Well, I... I, I <laughs> Michael Barrymore. <laughs> so problematics may... Like, Definitely I, Michael Barrymore. Yeah. Mr. Blobby? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was the natural question that came yeah. to my mind when you no, said that. No, no, but I suppose it's like, it's, it's just that there was a certain type of gay that was a, a gay man, for instance, that was on television who might be like stereotypically like effeminate yeah. or yeah, something yeah, and it's, it's not to say flamboyant caricature yeah right? uh, yeah exactly and yeah, there's obviously that's kind of what I was getting at yeah. sorry there's obviously nothing wrong with that but like yeah. if that's the only kind of sort of yeah, representation yeah, yeah. that you see yeah. then that's obviously quite problematic for lots of people and, and people therefore make assumptions that if you are gay then you have to yeah 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 you have to be like this or that mm. um, so the fact that there is now much more diversity of representation of LGBT people on television in the media I think has made it easier both for people coming out but also uh, their um, their families and, and how they feel about it. Mm. Um, and then obviously kind of movements in um, legislation actually have made a big difference, I think. Things like mm. gay marriage, like it's quite easy to say, well, you know, we already had civil partnerships, which we did. Um, but gay marriage, you know, it just kind of, it, I think it was important to the community and it was important in terms of people getting acceptance to be like, no, you know what? It is just marriage. It is, it is the same. It is equivalent. It is equally as valuable mm-hmm. yeah. um, or valued in society. And then obviously extensions on things like uh, adoption rights um, and that kind of thing as well. And much further to go. I mean, obviously, just this week, uh, gay conversion therapy, um, the government is planning to go ahead with that. But but for what God knows what reason, I, I cannot fathom, it's decided yeah. that trans conversion therapy is... Um, is off the cards, yeah, um, yeah, which is pretty heartbreaking kind of development. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, you, you know, the government likes a U-turn, so we hopefully we might see another one mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, it's a bit of a strange thing to say because obviously the fact that the government is going ahead with gay conversion therapy is great. Going Sorry, ahead going with ahead it? With I know, you said that earlier. I was like, you mean making it Sorry, illegal? Banning. Yeah, banning it. Yeah, Sorry, banning Sorry, just going ahead with the ban. Just I was to like, clarify. Ooh. Thank yeah, you for oh that. Oh, my word. Sorry, I sound like an absolute... And so, to be clear, all instances of... Conversion therapy, I meant banning conversion therapy. Um, <laughs> yeah, just man. rounding you up on mass and put you yeah. in. Boris Johnson, like, this way, lads. Get yeah, everyone yeah, into yeah. camp camp, basically. Henry, to see us off, we kind of approach this in an awfully, sci- a scientifically awful way, in that you're never really to start, you're never really meant to start with a premise and then go down a voyage of discovery. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the voyage of discovery has proved the point uh, that neoliberal capitalism. Mm-hmm. is making us all more depressed um what are your thoughts for how and we'll come to you to wrap up on on, on the personal and clinical side how should people be attempting to restructure society what are the things that people should campaign for um to remove the inevitability and what do we need in society to remove the inevitability of capitalism making us all so depressed so i think what you've said about kind of individualism mm. and sort of hyper individualism basically mm. this point that like you know to borrow from thatcher there is no such thing as a society mm-hmm. etc i think coming back um and uh you kind of a shrinking of the state and kind of a a, a, a kind of a mm, degradation of our institutions mm-hmm. you know like uh is making people feel further apart and more kind of more exposed to like the the, the horrors of life basically yeah i mean i mean just taking something like the nhs right the nhs mm-hmm. please being woo, woo, on woo, its- woo, woo, woo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
for the NHS being on its on its knees uh, oh, prior to the pandemic, you yeah. know, and now you know being in a situation where uh, some people, um, you know, they're facing incredibly long waiting lists for both, you know, mental health but also physical health, um, and some people are able to opt out and they're able to go, well, I will go private. And mm. we're going to, I, my, my big worry is that, that we're going to end up in a situation where um, if you can pay, you're going to be fine. Mm. Um, but if not, you're going to have to rely on this service, which has been completely, you know, completely starved of, yeah, starved of funding, decimated by the pandemic. Um, and you're going to end up in a situation where society is going to feel even more fractured because people with money won't, will, will be able to rely on those things. Um, and people who can't won't. Um, so yeah, you know, kind of protecting those institutions, which actually unite all of us, I think mm -hmm. is really important. The NHS is a good start, but <laughs> a well-funded state, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to think about how much inequality we're willing to accept mm -hmm. um, as well. So I think, you know, certainly the case over this same period, last 20 years, that people on high incomes, you know, top one, top 5% have done very well. Mm -hmm. um, so we do need to think about um, redistribution and kind of mm. particularly... I would say people at the very, you know, people who are at the very poorest kind of destitution levels, mm. that's going south. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up with a society even more divided. So yeah. we need to think about actually redistribution is, 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 is really important. Yeah. And mm. there are lots of ways that we can do it. And the benefit system is a good start. But it's also about making sure there are, you know, that we properly do try and um, design policy in a way that can reduce inequalities <laughs> rather yeah. than yeah. Um, uh, exacerbate them. On the clinical side, if people can't because the NHS is fucked or won't for cultural reasons or haven't for personal fear reasons, seek treatment outside the context of seeing a medical professional. If someone's just listening to this and what we've said resonates, what are the small practical steps people can take to help themselves uh, beyond joining a three month waiting list to see a doctor? <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, there are so many things that could be suggested. Um, Run them so off. So many that... Okay, so, yeah, I mean, the mind. thing is, the problem is when you're struggling, being able to do anything is hard, let alone take advice from a random or on a podcast. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, sleep, enjoy your sleep's good. Yeah. Um, talk to your pharmacist. Mm. Go and see your pharmacist and say, I, say, for example, you're struggling with sleep. Go and say, go and say, go and say that to them. Just say, mm -hmm. I want to try and get back into a sleep rhythm. Yeah. Sleep's like one of the most amazing healers. Yeah. Um, you can use, you know, Go, go and see what they would recommend because there are medicines available and maybe you don't want to take medicines. Try and get yourself out in the sunlight. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds nuts. Like, oh yeah, yeah. go out in the sunlight. But fully like Vitamin having your D, circadian... Yeah. I start taking circadian rhythm. Mm. Get your circadian yeah. rhythm back into a, yeah. into a, um, a flow if you can. Mm -hmm. um, if you can bring yourself to discuss things with someone else, yeah, try your best because, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much pressure on all of us and often I think a lot of us feel that we're the only ones going through such intense specific pressures but just by talking to other people will really help you to understand that um or should, potentially could help you understand that you're not on your own in those kind of yes. things reducing loneliness yes. as well and then I mean I would just I would just urge to seek help but obviously if you're if you're if you're not going to do that then and you, and you have your reasons fair enough but basics are those things I would say yeah. and then think about what you enjoy. So like when you were last happy and in a good place, mm. what were the things that you enjoyed? And if you can put yourself into a place where you can do that mm. as much as you can, like for example, if you're a music lover, just let, let yourself sit and listen mm. to music for 20 minutes. Right. 
Um, what else can you do? There's so much you can do. But, it's a good start though. But dif- difficult to kind of actually get into when you're in a really difficult place. The three main practical steps that I took. Yeah, uh, what did you do? That's interesting. So, so, so one was I joined a gym. Yeah. And it was an expensive gym. I'm very lucky to be able to join it. Um, but I did it because it would actually force me to go. If I joined a 20 pound a month gym, I just wouldn't turn up. But this one has forced me to go. And so I go four or five times a week. Mm. Um, and it's not only giving me a target to work for because I can't be looking fat on Instagram. Um, <laughs> yeah. in Rio, hundred percent. You will, you, by the time this comes out, you will all be seeing me yeah. topless. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's genuinely improved my mental health and it's because I, I used to play so much sport when I was younger. I got yeah. a, a sports bursary that I got to that boarding school was because I was playing football three years above my age group, rugby two years above tennis, always prided myself on my physical capacity. And the first thing that happens when I'm depressed is I get fat. So I joined a gym. Team sports as well. Yeah, for sure. I play right? netball every Monday. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And it's huge. It's huge. It's nice. Honestly. So the first, thing is, the first thing is get active. And get active because we are not, we're just fundamentally not designed to sit at desks. We're not. And this economy has us sitting at desks. We've been, there was a phrase I read somewhere that says something like we've been invertebrates for 500 million years. We've been out of the oceans for 300 million years. We've been something like mammals for 100 million years. We've been primates for something like 50 million years. Uh, we've been something like humans for the last hundred thousand years and we've been sitting at desks for 50 years yeah we're just we're just not we're designed to move Mm, and we're designed uh which leads me on to the kind of the second point we're not designed to live in urban landscapes right which is why everyone feels better when they go on holiday because they can see the fucking sea and they can see the countryside you've just been able to see space above your head we're seeing earth it's seeing it's seeing the planet that we evolved on Mm. for hundreds of millions of years and that is a stress reliever so get the vitamin d and i've actually started taking um, vitamin D supplements. You've joined the vitamin party. Vitamin, <laughs> vitamin D club, Welcome. finally. Well, Did finally. you know that the UK is, I'm sure everybody knows this, but like everybody in the UK is vit- vitamin D deficient, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah, so am I. And especially yeah. the black community, yeah. people with darker skin, like Asian yeah. communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, are yeah. You? yeah. yeah. I'm not deficient because I've been popping them pills, popping them pills <laughs> for some time, my friend. Uh, but the last <laughs> thing that you said about doing something you enjoy, I, I'm now so used to being depressed that I, when I feel yeah. it coming, I immediately watch a comedy, and yep. specifically a comedy. And it does nothing but make you laugh. Curb. When I just was find depressed. Just find something fucking stupid. And it sounds mm-hmm. stupid. The Office US. Yeah. It works every time. Yeah. Just laughing. And if for nothing else than the, it temporary, temporarily... Temporary. R- temporary. I haven't even drunk this episode. <laughs> it temporarily uh, stops you thinking that you're depressed. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it cuts the reminder. Because being depressed is a constant reminder of how upset you are. And it's a totally repressed yeah, version yeah. of yourself yeah. that reinforces how depressed you are. And that's unhealthy, but yeah. just laughing. When I was depressed, I, without realizing it, I just didn't realize it. And all of a sudden, about three months later, I was like, I've been Googling James A. Caster every night. For yeah. No <laughs> jokes. I was just literally like, yeah. I was literally like, must find new James, James A. Caster. I want to see a joke I haven't heard from James A. Caster. Because I love yeah. him. Yeah. And like, he makes me cry with laughter. And I'd be yeah. sitting on my own in a dark bedroom after having a ridiculously horrible day in the hospital, come home and I'd be like, oh, James. James. Mm. Seriously. Yeah, my yeah, ginger yeah. king. Well, it's funny because like, like, pregnant women know they're pregnant because they start eating funny shit. Like my mum started oh, yeah. eating pick a lily and pork pies. And that's how she was like, oh, fuck, pregnant. And now I still eat pick lily. People no. can tell they're depressed with, uh, with triggers. The things yeah. that, yeah, right? Yeah. And I think, I think that's it. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say before I hand over to Rich to, to wrap up is that I think over the last, however long this episode's going to be, probably quite long. Um, we're good. We've established, and this is the thing that I keep hearing and explain to people when they talk to me, that it's not your fault you're depressed, right? Genetically speaking, it's not something you control. The fallacy of chemical imbalances, not something particularly that you can control. 
your job is designed to keep you economically repressed, which is stressful, which leads to depression. Uh, your housing situation, the expensiveness of your rent and the cost of living um, is designed in this system, this economic system to make you stressed, which leads to you being depressed. Um, the individualism with which we live in the West, as we've established, uh, is designed to make you depressed because it keeps you in economic servitude. Uh, between your housing, your job, the culture, pressures like social media, inability to access healthcare, if you feel depressed, it's not your fault. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Yeah. It's you are entirely I geared. That, I do think that actually to feel that way. The yeah. inevitability factor, yeah. yeah. And you should not feel ashamed for it. Amen. You should not feel ashamed for it. Amen. Uh, Definitely and not. The most, the the hardest thing, and this is the worst thing that I've always found about depression, because actually, once you start getting treatment, I find the majority of people treat away relatively quickly. It takes may take a few months, God willing. Some people it takes longer. You learn to live with it after X amount of time. The highest hurdle, the highest hurdle is saying, I need help. Mm. And if you just say it, if you just say it to yourself, I need help, that is the hardest challenge that you'll have to face. And over that hill, it all starts going downwards. Mm. Um, Amen. So anyone listening to this, if anything's resonated with you, I mean, speak to me, speak to Rich. If you can't speak to a doctor, yeah. we're here. Uh, you know, and we got what, you. That's, and in large part, I'm sure Rich would agree with me, Doing this podcast stops me getting depressed. Hundred percent. And this keeps me. Johnny, alive. Johnny always used to say that um, when we first started the podcast. He used to say quite a bit, and I noticed he was like, "This is therapy for me." Um, and Johnny hasn't told me everything about his life. I've learned a lot today. Oh. Um, so a lot of it's making more sense now. Thank you both for sharing so much. No, thank you guys. Thank you for being both here. Very much. For Ellie context. James, yes. Henry Park. <laughs> yes. You guys have been amazing. Superstars. Henry was Henry Snack was nervous as fuck. <laughs> Podcast pro. <laughs> Fucking natural. Podcast what? pro. What? <laughs> Obviously, she's got an advantage. She's got a whole radio show. This, whole is radio a, show. this is a walk in a park for her. Guys, do you have anything you want to plug or anything you want to say in this next section i don't really have that just thanks very much for having me cool man you got, an R you got an r&b song for us or i do not <laughs> no? okay. it's a shame i was looking forward to it um ellie yeah i've got a few things all right oh Ooh -hoo -hoo. <laughs> one thing there's something that i didn't mention today which i think is a really interesting thing to think about for everybody who's thinking about why they're depressed and why they're struggling is there's this new well for the last like five years, there's a new model. There's a model that's been developed by a psychologist mm -hmm. called the power threat meaning model. Have you heard of it? Nope. And basically it talks about a word you've been using a lot, agency, mm -hmm. and how power and the threats that come from being out of power yeah. or having power ha having power over you from like by someone else um, is one of the biggest causes of distress, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to like, like we were saying with, I mean, I don't know 100% what I think about capitalism exactly and how mm. it impacts but i certainly think that you could see that in that context so the, the power that capitalism and the government mm. and the economic situation has over all of us at the moment yeah. of course it's causing us distress mm. so if, if you're interested have a read power threat meaning model mm -hmm. and then i mean obviously if you want to listen to my radio show yes <laughs> plug it it's called long cool woman where can it's we on, find it it's right so you need to go to voices radio um and look for no i wait uh-oh 
Oh, I haven't you, prepared you're gonna plug, this. You've got to come prepared. This is yeah. the thing. I didn't come with... That wasn't my intent. She didn't come to plug. She didn't come to plug. She came naturally it humble. Wasn't. It wasn't my intent. Yeah, exactly. She got in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. Right, so you can go to... If you'd like to have a listen to my radio show, you can go on Instagram and look up at longcoolwoman underscore. So that's smart because she gets a follow as well as a stream. Yeah, that's yeah, game. Yeah, that's yeah, game. Yeah. It's every second Thursday of the month okay. at 11 o'clock. And it streams from Voices Radio FM, which you can Google. Fantastic. Amazing. King's Cross. Amazing. Or you can come down and listen live at King's Cross every second Thursday, 11 a.m. Oh, yeah? Lovely Might stuff. have to do that. Mm-hmm. You should. Thank you to everybody once again for listening to us um really have enjoyed talking to my friends friends of the show by the way henry and ellie you are welcome back anytime i've particularly enjoyed a very very adorable very very cute not sure if you gents have been noticing ellie she's just been stretching out her toes like that and twinkling (laughs) her toes like that that's been the whole time it's been very very cutesy <laughs> but specifically when uh, she like when she makes a point yeah. like when her brain's working yeah. her toes, her go toes just go out yeah. oh she's doing it now yeah. it's been very enjoyable as well um, this could end terribly episode 40 we'll see you soon peace Woo-hoo.